G'day, welcome to the New Sparrow Podcast. I am Shrek. If you are here to get better at spearfishing, update yourself on some stoke, maybe learn some new tips and tricks and improve your spearfishing, you're in the right place. And uh, today's episode with Sam Dawson is absolutely excellent. He is a prolific Australian sparrow, competition sparrow, very, very competent guy, very knowledgeable. We have some, we get into the weeds today with a couple of things and uh, I learned at least half a dozen things. Sam's a really interesting guy and um, there's some great info into, in today's podcast, so stick around for that. Before we get into that, there are a couple of shout outs. Just wanted to say thanks to Alligator Arms Romano. Um, thanks, Tony, for your message uh, with support with regards to our Patreon. Um, just wanted to give you guys an update on that. So we have a Patreon, which basically allows um, creators to um, raise money from their community uh, to help them do stuff. And basically what we're doing is we're raising uh, money. People support us on a per episode basis. Uh, there's three levels, $2, $5, or $10. So if you go to patreon.com forward slash Noobsparrow, you'll see what it's about there. But um, basically, all the money that we raise from Patreon is going to pay for trips. So we can come out and visit different parts of the world and go spearing with you guys, maybe do a live interview in your neck of the woods. And, uh, you know, we just, we, we'd like to slowly start making our way out there and send some of the places we've only heard about on the 104-odd uh, podcast we've done. So just wanted to give you a quick update on Patreon. We've got um, $310 in the account there and we've got a Melbourne trip planned for later this year. So I'll keep you updated on that in the weeks to come. In other news, uh, Rubbish Sparrows keeps going from strength to strength. Trevor Ketchian, uh, recent legend on the show, a couple of episodes, three episodes I've done with him now. He's got a page on Facebook called Rubbish Sparrows. Get in on that. And on that note, Sam Clothier from Wet Mammal Productions. By the way, follow that guy on Facebook and YouTube. He's got some great spearing vids. Uh, he's a 26-year-old uh, based in Sydney, but he started out um, collecting rubbish alongside his spearing and he's encouraging people to use the hashtag cat hashtag catch and clean and the other one is oh jeepers there's another one um oh yeah hashtag one fish one plastic and uh, i like these guys there's another one hashtag take three for the ocean um these some of these things are, are getting traction and sparrows are able to get involved with cleaning up the ocean i think it's a fantastic initiative um i'm going to get involved and plan a cleanup mission uh, out at one of my local shore diving spearfishing spots because it's just covered in fishing line and crap and um it's just a matter of arranging the time but jump on rubbish sparrows on facebook and follow along there and uh yeah Jump on Wet Manimal on YouTube as well and follow Sam's adventures. But uh, I thought that was a cool initiative. So hashtag catch and clean, hashtag one fish, one plastic on Instagram. Last bit of news before we get into this interview with Sam is our YouTube channel. It's starting to go great guns. We're actually starting to put some videos up. Uh, in the next coming weeks and months, I'll be putting up um, some stuff for the GoPro 7. Uh, Turbo and I bought these two Hero Blacks, and i just taken one out for a trial run, and I've worked out all the accessories I needed to buy, and um, guys like Daniel Mann and Buddy Walsh have helped me dial in some settings. So I'm filming in 2.7K, um, but stay up to date with that, and uh, subscribe to our YouTube channel. But uh, let, hey, let's hook into this interview. It's an absolute cracker. Sam Dawson, here we go.
Today's Dynamite Noob Spiro podcast is brought to you by spearfishing.com.au. That's right, the fine folks over at Adreno have been supporting the Noob Spiro podcast since about episode 18, and they help pay the bills around here. Just want to encourage you to check out spearfishing.com.au and use the code Noob Spiro. You can save 20 bucks on every purchase over 200 but it's just a great online shopping experience. The reviews are phenomenal. If you want to check out a new spear gun, new pair of booties, new pair of gloves, someone's used them before, they've written a review, it's on their website, it's all there, right for, there for you. Head along to spearfishing.com.au and thank you for shopping with it. Today's major sponsor, Adreno. G'day Sam, welcome to the show. It's awesome to finally get you on, man. Yeah, thanks guys. It's good to uh, finally get, get a hold of you and tee it up. Tell us a bit about yourself and how you got started spearing. I got started spearing. I actually grew up on the east coast, so around the central coast of New South Wales, in between Sydney and Newcastle, and just always around the water as a grommet, I guess, and got my main uh, love from the ocean from my, my father, who was a big-time sort of keen surfer, and he mainly just used to do a bit of spearing when the swell was too flat, to be honest. He wasn't a, wasn't a gun spearer or anything like that. Um, pretty sort of amateur, but I was hassling him enough that when I was a little, I think I was about nine when I first started, so I hassled him enough that he uh, dusted off his spear guns and started taking me diving and sort of just kicked off from there, really. Oh, awesome. So he was more of a surfer and an opportunistic spirit. What were some of the early, early things you, you learned from him at nine years old? What made you so keen? I think what made me so keen is where I grew up in New South Wales, um, I spent the first sort of 15 years of my life there and um, I had a lake at the end of my road and I was always sort of around the ocean, you know. I was doing sort of surf lifesaving, like nippers, I think they call it when you're a grom and, uh, yeah, just was fishing. I was fishing sort of from a toddler onwards, you know, and I think it was just a, a natural thing. I always loved the water and I was probably probably a bit too keen almost and just hassled the parents. I think, I think they wanted to wait till I was about 10, but I think, they got a bit too annoying me nagging them so eventually headed out but um yeah dad dad definitely just taught me to respect the ocean and just yeah dive safely and stuff it was it was definitely pretty important part of obviously getting that initial love for the ocean i guess ah no that's cool sam i was just thinking my boy's six going on seven and uh i've already been getting in trouble with getting him out in the water in the winter uh, with his mother, so I'm just thinking nine's pretty ambitious uh, age to sort of to get started, but maybe that's something that uh, we can aim for. So, what were some of your early wins and some of the early obstacles you had um, starting out as well, Sam? Um, well, like I said, my dad wasn't really a super gun spear or anything, so we were sort of learning together. You know, probably more so him as well. But to be honest, when we first started, you know, we didn't have any good gear. I was, I was diving in my little used to do a bit of bodyboarding and stuff, so I had me a little um, surf steamer. I think it was even a shorty. I don't even think it had had um, legs on it and some tiny little fins. And um, I think my dad, my dad made me start on a hand spear first, you know, before giving me his gun and giving me a few shots of his gun. Um, yeah. And yeah, it made me made me sort of shoot a few fish on the hand spear. And then eventually, oh. I got a spear gun when I was probably. I don't know. I think I was, I was still in primary school, so I can't really remember the age. But it was a couple, a good couple of years of trying to hit fish with a hand spear and mostly not doing too good. <laughs> and yeah, then, yeah. Um, and then, yeah, he sort of started letting me shoot his gun a bit, and vice versa. And 
got my first gun and I think I could just load it. It was a little <laughs> undersea zap or something like that. And um yeah. yeah, slowly just started plugging a few fish, but it wasn't anything, you know, I was definitely all just shore diving and just chasing smaller fish like luderick and brim and mostly pretty unsuccessful on the fish front really. <laughs> So it sounds like you went from standing on the beach with a rod and reel to getting out there and getting a muxer with a spear gun. Um, but, you know, there's definitely some substantial obstacles along the way. Yeah. Yeah, I still I still vividly remember my first dive, you know. I remember, I think it was down to Wound Bay and I still remember parts of the dive and, yeah, I think I think there was no turning back from after that first dive with Dad. Um, parents used to love it because they used to get bribed all the time, wash the car and I'll take you diving and that sort of thing and you'd never see a car washed that quick. <laughs> oh, that's a good one. I like that trick. Yeah, you have to you have to hit, hit your lads up to do that one, mate. It, it sounds like um, some of those memories are pretty fresh for you though, Sam. What's a memorable fish for you, Sam? It might have been then, it might have been later. I follow you on Instagram, so I know you shoot some good fish, mate. So share, share a story about one of them. Um, thanks, mate. Um, I think moving forward in recent times, there's a couple. I know the most recent one for me is probably I was lucky enough to get a 20 kilo plus um, WA Jewfish. That was a one I've sort of had on my bucket list for a long, long time and lucky enough to get one. I haven't been in WA very long, so I was uh, pretty stoked to get that one. All right, Sam, well, um, yeah, take us there on the day. I mean, what's the eating quality like on a fish like that? Are they still good at the big sizes? Oh, 100%. They're, uh, I actually ate it. It was in my freezer. I was going to get it taxidermied, um, and then I got sick of it taking up room in my freezer, so I actually ate it only a few okay. months ago, and it was over. It was probably about a year old, and it was still great. Like, I, I froze it whole, you know. It wasn't probably the best way to keep it, but still tasted great, so... They're definitely still good eating. Um, in terms of hunting them, man, I wish I, I wish I had. Um, I'm probably not the most qualified person to talk about this, but they're a pretty cryptic fish. You know, they can turn up anywhere. You can get them in the deep. You can get them in the shallow. You can get them in the middle of nowhere. But I guess to probably narrow down your chances and make it the best for yourself, um, you really want to just find some decent sort of structure. They definitely like caves and areas where they can sort of hang and rest and feel sort of safe in gutters and, and caves and that sort of thing. Generally speaking, limestone is the go, and generally speaking, where you find them, it is mostly limestone, but there is um, granite in some areas. Generally, don't find that as good as I do limestone just because limestone wears out and you can get nice little caves and swim-throughs and stuff like that. And then also just trying to find some um reef where there's smaller fish you know often uh the smaller fish king wrasse and there's a lot of little herring and sweep and trevally and skippies and stuff that are if they're hanging around a reef often you know you might be in a good area to try and look around for a jewfish but they're a pretty frustrating fish because they can just pop up anywhere and <laughs> i don't think anyone really hasn't figured out <laughs> so when you're looking for specific rock types like limestone or granite are you paying attention to the shore and what the rock is like there to sort of pick out what the water, what the rock's going to be like below the surface? Yeah, definitely. I mean, in most parts of the coast where you probably, you know, down south of um, WA where you probably got the best chance of running into a large jewfish, definitely looking at the 
sort of rock formations on the coast and the cliffs is pretty good indicator. You know, if there's some fallen rocks um, going down the cliff or if there's a real steep point or something like that where there's limestone or a particular type of rock, generally, you know, from the way the seabed would have been thousands of years ago, if you go out from that, um, not necessarily just in along the coast. In along the coast can be great, but even if you go out, even a K or 500 metres, often you'll find similar sort of structure, I guess you would say, under underwater at times, yeah. Just while we were chatting, Sam, I've noticed a couple of things about you. You seem to be very observant, particularly about things like the benthos and things like that. Uh, so with your knowledge around the ocean and, you know, you know, from bait fish to weed and rock formations, how did you sort of start cataloging the information and remembering it and things like that? Um, probably just a slow process of learning, I think, um, and then being around some sort of good people, I guess. You sort of pick up stuff from them. Um, I was lucky enough, I, get, I, went, I, I was living in New South Wales and then I moved to South Australia where I spent probably 10 years and probably wasn't until I moved there that I really started to learn a bit about how to dive properly and got good gear and all that and I was lucky enough to sort of get around some good people and some pretty knowledgeable people there and a lot of things I learned in South Aussie I sort of just took with me elsewhere so cool I'm looking forward to digging into some of your South Australian lessons and hopefully in Veterans Vault we can get into the scrounging and stuff who were some of the teachers and mentors you had over there yeah yeah I was lucky enough there was a few key people there. It's hard to narrow it down because a lot of people helped me, but probably the biggest influencer and helper early on in my spearfishing was definitely a lady called Marianne Stacey. Uh, I'm not sure if you heard of her, but she's I think she's about nine times Australian champion and uh, been in the Australian freediving team, and she's, she's probably getting on now. She would hate me saying that, but um, when I first moved to South Australia, I think I was about 15, and... Um, yeah, definitely looking to get a bit more keen into diving as you are at that age and um, managed to meet up with Mary Ann. And at the time, she was running probably the only functional spearfishing club left in South Australia. And basically, she was just such a kind lady and basically took me everywhere. And my parents were pretty trusting in her because she was, you know, she was a snorkel teacher and she used to teach outdoor ed and free dive instructor and all the rest of it. So, basically just got shipped off to her place, you know. I was about 15 and the parents would just drop me off at hers and we'd go away. And I think I think the first ever dive trip I did with Marianne was about two weeks straight and I'd only met her once, which was great, just like you do in Spirit. Parents just shipped me off there and we went when we went across to Kangaroo Island and funnily enough, I think it was a Australian titles and it was a bit of a bit of a steep learning curve for me. I dove in that and had absolutely no idea what I was doing. Come, you know, a little grommet from the east coast, used to using hand spears and, you know, average little gear and stuff. And yeah, went there and flapped around a bit, but learned a heap and basically didn't turn back from there, you know, from there to about, I think I was about 18. And then I met a guy called Dave Schofield through a mutual friend at school. Yeah. Well, I think it was, I think it was actually, no, it was before then. I met him when I was about 16. Yeah. Um, yeah, when I was about 16, because I definitely left school before I was 18. And, um, yeah, met Dave. And then he's probably the other key person that from later on, basically we teed up and just become a pretty mean team and just diving everywhere in South Australia. And Rain, Hale or Shine would sort of do it every weekend, you know. And that's he's probably the 
the most influential guy later on in terms of learning and staying keen because South Australia is a pretty hard place to dive a lot of the time. You know, it's cold, there's sharks, you know, it's not the most glamorous place at times. And he definitely, uh, definitely kept us keen and we just used to throw out and try to do different things. And yeah, still like diving with him today, actually. Yeah, he's great. Is he, he's still competitive too. So it sounds like you landed in a community of champions. Um, I believe Dave's still competing. And uh, I think you, there was a team that went over to New Zealand recently. Have I got that right? Yeah. Oh, that was actually, I think you're talking about, yeah, I've seen Dave. We're only, I think it was about a month ago now. Yeah, there was Dave Schofield from South Australia, myself, Bryson Shee, Jack Lavender, and Derek from New South Wales, and we all we headed down to Eden actually. So there was a Interpax oh, comp in Eden, yeah. And you, and your boys cleaned up. Yeah, I wouldn't say cleaned it up. It's pretty tough comp. I would have probably liked to have won by more, but that's just me being a critic. But um, <laughs> yeah, we we won. We were lucky enough to win and um, beat the other countries. But pretty big learning curve for us all. But it was it was awesome. Like I can't wait to do the next one. So, so did you place first in the individuals? What what, what was the score there? Yeah. So this is the Interpax comp I'm talking about, um, or Inner Pacific in long, non Aussie slang, and basically it's between all the Pacific nations. So um, Hawaii, New Caledonia, Guam, um, Tahiti, New Zealand, and then Australia. In this particular event, Hawaii and Guam didn't come, but all the other countries come and we're lucky enough to have it in Australia because it rotates um, countries every year so everyone gets a fair go. Um, hasn't been in Australia for quite some time and we're lucky enough to have it in a place called Eden on the yep. southern coast of New South Wales, which is great diving. Pretty cold for the tropical guys, but um, definitely pretty similar diving for the Kiwis. Mm. And... And, yeah, well, it's a two-day event. You'll go out in boats and basically you have allocated scouting days where you can look at the look at the coast and, you know, we provide boats for the host nation, provides boats for all the other countries. And basically you go to a location, everyone jumps in the water and you sort of have a marker boy and that's your starting point and finish point. And you swim around for six hours and try to shoot a um, select sort of list of fish and it's a pretty strategic comp. It was definitely a lot, a lot of learning for us, but, but yeah, pretty good fun at the same time. It's a pairs diving comp too, so it's not quite like our nationals. You know, it's probably more like the New Zealand nationals. You dive in pairs. It's one up, one down, and they enforce it very strictly. So, yeah, you, one person dives on a thirty meter line or or longer, and then another guy has to have a four meter line and. Yeah, it's it's super fun diving. To be honest, it's great. Yeah. Okay. So, who was your buddy? Um, I rotated buddies. So the first day I dove with Derek from New South Wales, mm. and then the second day I dove with my buddy uh, Dave Schofield from South Australia. Cool. So, what which day was the better one for you guys, and uh, and your team? Um, the first day. We actually just got pipped by the Kiwis. So we shot 52 fish between four of us. Um, And then on the second day, we shot 43 fish between the four of us. The second day was definitely the lot harder zone. You know, it was a lot more scratchy. So I'd probably say the most enjoyable day for me was the first one just because there's a lot more action. 
a um, lot more fish and Ooh. yeah it was it was definitely definitely a lot of fun because we we got to shoot a few fish but um yeah the, the second day was just a tough one like it was everyone everyone we knew it was going to be tough going into the second day especially and every fish sort of counted you know you, you couldn't you know, it was really hard to get a massive lead on everyone in a zone like that because there's just not that many fish. Mm. And um, I don't like to say the Kiwis got lucky on the first day, but they 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 got onto some salmon and some pelagic fish that you know we probably not quite overlooked, but you know they they got onto them and we didn't, so they slightly got up on us with that. And um, but yeah, we managed to pull off the win in the end, which was good. Oh yeah, I didn't know the, where the comp was, so thanks for filling us in on the. On the details, I was pretty proud of the the Kiwi boys, but uh, obviously you guys had home territory, home ground advantage. So, well done on getting the win. Yeah, yeah, no, was, there was top divers there from everywhere. I guess that's probably the different thing that I've never seen. You know, um, just everyone that's in the water there and those interpack comps are top divers, and you know, anywhere that you can swim, they can swim. Anywhere yeah. you can dive, they can dive. It, it's totally different. You know, I've, I'm not, I haven't dove that many comps to be honest but in the nationals and stuff that i've dove i'm used to kind of burning off a lot of people and you can just go on your own and do your little thing for a while but there's none of that in this comp you know it's it's quite quite uh not, not overwhelming but it's different that's for sure so it seems there's talent galore there's just great divers um you know in all the countries that we're competing um talking about that i've got a couple of ladies joining me on the podcast in the next coming weeks and uh the ladies are just as competitive as the men so that'll be an entertaining conversation for sure but yeah it's awesome to see all the talent around and uh and and you're one of them sam yeah yeah i i think i was lucky probably not so much mentors just just dive mates but definitely steep steep learning curve coming here um mm. diving's pretty different but i haven't said that a lot of the principles are the same it's just it's just slightly different the fish are often bigger and um a few things like that but yeah i was lucky enough to tee up with some some real good guys over here as you sort of do in spearfishing and um yeah i sort of dive my own i've got a few little different groups of guys and it's kind of hard because you know, over here trying to tee up the weather with everyone's time off and all the rest of it, but um, probably don't dive as much as I like here. But, but yeah, definitely got some good guys here. Funnily enough, one of my um, real good dive mates is from the East Coast, but um, he's moved over here similar to me, doing a bit of work and what have you. Okay, who's that? Uh, Kane Wiki. He'd probably hate me saying, saying it on the uh, podcast. <laughs> he's a pretty undercover guy, but I do a lot of diving with Kane. Right. And... Um, Few other guys, Finn Rushworth, Tom Matheson, and then yeah. I've got I, I live with two really good housemates that are actually Spearos too, which is pretty handy. Um, Caleb, Caleb Moore, and Riley Moore, and um, oh, that's yeah, so it's pretty handy living with two Spearos, and we've got a little boat yeah. between us. So, and, what, and yeah, where are you based? Are you what part of WA yeah? Um, I'm based in Perth, so I work up in Port Edland. Um, and then I, yeah, obviously spend my time off here. So I work fly and fly out roughly week on week off sort of roster okay. and, um, yeah, and in Perth for now anyway, it suits me for now. Enough of a shine on there, Sam. So you, you had these fantastic mentors down South when you were in, in South Australia there, and then you made the move over to WA. Did you discover a whole bunch of, uh, knowledgeable people over there when you got there as well? 
Um, yeah, definitely. So in South Australia, where I'm from, you know, it's, as most people know, generally speaking, there's a lot of smaller fish. But having said that, um, we did used to do a bit of blue water stuff down there. So I wasn't wasn't too out of the ordinary for me. I guess the only thing that's out of the ordinary is you go from using a one-meter praying gun 98% of the time to coming over here where you're using a – I use – a 1200 or a 1400 all the time if you know what i mean there's no i don't i don't generally get the small gun out over here unless i'm shooting a king george or something like that but but yeah just just getting used to diving with a big gun all the time i guess it's it is it is different and then we mainly use real guns here in wa Mm. Uh, it's a bit of a trend and it's pretty funny you you probably wouldn't want to bring a float on a lot of people's uh boat they'd look at you funny but um, yeah, we generally use real guns. We'll, we'll often be diving around a float. You know, it's not that we're not diving without floats, but mm. you'll have a flash of float instead. You know, you might have some burly on it, um, and yeah, you'll have a flash of float, and you'll sort of be drifting or diving around that generally. Yeah. So when you jump in with a flash of float, will you have like a burly bag hanging off it, or? Yeah, generally you have have that or a stringer. Like if if I'm diving and I've got muleys or pilchards, you might have a burly bag, and then. Usually, usually just have a stringer on there, and I like to shoot a shoot a buff brim or something like that, and burly that throughout the day or throughout the hour or drift or whatever you're doing. Yep. So, are you diving in twos or threes, or how does your sort of system or your setup work? Yeah, yeah. I'd say generally, most of the guys I dive with, there's probably never usually more than three of you in the water, just because when the weather does come good here in WA, generally we're diving pretty far offshore, so. You generally don't pack out your boat. You know, you might have three or four of yours, um, usually at least three, so there's at least two of yours in the water. Um, there's a lot of big sharks and stuff like that over here. So, yeah, you definitely want two of yours in the water, which is pretty common, but, yeah, two or three, yeah. When you when we dive off Brisbane over, over here, um, you know, using Burley's more trouble than it's worth a lot of the time. Do, do, you have, do you have issues with that as well over there with sharks and stuff? Yeah, definitely. Like, there's there's definitely areas that you don't want to burly a lot, and I guess that's that's probably more so when you head a lot further north. But it depends upon what region of WA you're diving. Really, like a lot of places when you're super far offshore, there is a lot of sharks on the sea mounts and and stuff you are diving. But it just depends upon the day. You could go out there and not see a shark. Then you go out other days and there's half a dozen tigers swimming around you like you sort of just got to gauge it and obviously you're not just going to rain down burly if the sharks are being a problem you sort of just got to gauge it i think okay good advice what are some of the scarier or dodgy shark stories or moments you've had out there oh yeah i've had i've had a couple i've actually been nipped by a shark once before when i was diving overseas but not really anything too crazy compared to some guys like Greg Pickering or some of the other guys you might have had on the show. But yeah, I've been had a few stitches from a few sharks, I guess. Yeah. All right, we'll leave that for a sec. Let, let's hook into your hunting technique. What's a, what's one of your favourite species to hunt, and how do you do it effectively? Um, challenging species. Um, they all can be pretty challenging, but um, I guess here in WA, I probably touched on it before. My favourite ones probably. Big Jewfish. I mean, I spent a lot of time trying to um, find one, and then when I did find one, it was it was a pretty rewarding thing. And I think for a lot of people, it's pretty high on their list here in WA. There's some other good, a lot of other good fish we get here, 
Um, but I think trying to get a real big Dewey is sort of up there for me, for sure. Yeah. And maybe maybe big snapper too, but not many of those get shot in uh, WA. It seems to me with spearfishing that sometimes, you know, uh, it's it's more about finding fish than it is about actually hunting them. What are your thoughts about that? Yeah, I'd say that's definitely pretty true with Jewfish, but there's always exceptions to the rule, but definitely had a f- plenty that I can't get. But um, I, I would say that's pretty true. Yeah, the 20 kilo one I shot, I had to play with it a little bit, but eventually ended up getting it, yeah. So what, you had mul- multiple drops on the fish? Yeah, I, I did. Well, funnily enough, I was diving with my mate, and um, we are lucky enough to have some real good weather and in the right sort of location at the right time of year, which rarely happens. And um, we were putting in some pretty big hours in the water, and on the first day, my mate was uh, lucky enough to get a 21-kilo dewey, and I saw that in the water, and I was, I was pretty blown away by that, and um, we landed that one. And then the next day, obviously, I was trying to look for one. And, and I saw this fish as well as he did, and it sort of swam underneath us and wasn't particularly deep water, maybe 12 metres. And um, I was the water was real clear, so I was, I was sizing up. I was like, oh, I don't, I don't, think, it's, I don't think it's that big, you know. Like I, I didn't think it was that particularly big because the day before I, I was lucky enough I shot a 7.5 kilo one. I didn't want to shoot one the same sort of size. I was like, no, I've only got one more day. I want, I want a twenty kilo one, and and yeah, my mate's like, well, I, I think it's pretty big, and I was like, I dove down, and yeah, I think I, I think I had one dive on it, and I was right on top of it, and I was, I come up, I ended up coming up and chatting to him. I was like, oh, I don't think it's, I don't think it's any bigger than the one I got yesterday, mate. And he's like, no, nah, <laughs> I think, I think you're wrong. And anyway, by that point, this thing's sort of already lost interest, and it's sort of moseying off, and. And then he sort of convinced me to have another look at it. And anyway, I was I ended up following it, and it took me probably half a dozen dives to get it because it was ducking in and out of a few holes, and I had to cruise along the reef a bit. But eventually, I caught up to it, and it was um, caved up in a hole. And when I saw it in the cave, I, I got a bit bit more perspective of yeah, right. sort of how big it was because it was against hmm. you know against the rocks and all that. And I ended up shooting it in the cave, and yeah, lucky I did because it was <laughs> it was over twenty. <laughs> bloody good fish. When I've shot fish uh, in caves before or, you know, with rock right up hard behind the fish, I, f- I think that I've shot fish before and the flopper hasn't – the shaft hasn't gone through far enough for the flopper to open up. Um, have you had some experience with that? Have you had that happen to you as well? I'd love to <laughs> – I'd love to hear I'm not alone. Yeah, definitely with a speed spear, that can be a drama. Um, yeah, and, and with the jury, it was probably a thought in my mind too, but – it wasn't a big cave, but I sort of tried to shoot it on a bit of an angle. See, the spear is going to go in a lot of flesh, and and um, I think I shot it probably not the best shot, but I ended up shooting it in the sort of gill plate and come out the other side. So it was sort of thrashing around a bit in the cave, but but yeah, the spear came out the other side with this one, so there was no real dramas there. Just quickly, spear guns. You mentioned a ninety, a one twenty, a one four. What what what's your setup? Are you using the same handle? What's your policy with spear guns? Yeah, I'm I'm a pretty big believer in that. Uh, most of my guns that I use for sort of general purpose stuff all have a. Um, I'm pretty old school. I will use um, Picasso Century or basic handles. Okay. Um, so yeah, all my guns from ninety to sort of one four all have the same handles, and 
they're basically just a rail gun. So I sort of mix and match, um, put them together myself. But usually, yeah, just a carbon barrel, Picasso okay. handle and, and a muzzle. And I usually only use a single rubber and a 7mm spear. And um, here in WA, with my 12 and 1400, I have them both set up the same way, same reel, same handle, um, 18 mil rubber and a 7 mil spear. And, you, and it's closed muzzle guns? Yeah, yeah, I use a closed muzzle, yep. You've got the typical classic hunting comp diver setup. Is that a setup you see all the time when you're out doing comps? Um, yeah, yeah. So some guys are pretty savvy with their gear and others aren't. It's pretty funny, but um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I definitely I definitely like to keep it pretty simple and keep it similar across across the um, range of my guns because you know you can pick up a pick up a one meter gun or you can pick up a one four and you know you're putting the line on the same side of the gun on the the line release. Yeah, you know it, it's all just the same. It it just becomes quick and second nature. I think when you chop and change guns a lot. You know, for general purpose spearing, it can, you know, a lot of people have dramas with accuracy and hitting yeah. stuff or they can't reload quick and all that sort of thing. Yep. 100% relate to that. It's funny that you say some people are savvy with gear and some people aren't because, you know, I've definitely put myself in one of the ones that I'm not super savvy with gear, but Turbo is kind of the opposite. But um, I can relate to, you know, standardizing, using the same setup all the time. Makes sense to me, keeping it simple. And I like the idea that you've got this repeatable sort of method, um, you know, to make sure you're getting the same results time after time. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Eh? I reckon I reckon it rings true a lot. You know, if you've got a few different guns to use, most people only probably use two or three guns. But um, if they're all different, it's it's hard to get used to anything, you know. And a lot of people will say, oh, this is my favourite gun and this is that. But, you know, at the end of the day, if they're all pretty similar, they all should be your favourite gun and they should all shoot right. But I think people probably have a favourite gun just because one style might suit them more or something like that. So if you do find a gun like that, then it sort of makes sense to have a couple of them in different sizes or whatever you do, yeah. The other thing I've been having conversations uh, with a mate who does spear gun engineering um, is, you know, how how you aim. Um, Because it seems like there's two schools of thought. Um, there's two styles of shooter. There's guys that look down the barrel, and then there's more of a feel sort of shooter. They look at the spot on the fish they want to shoot, and then they just shoot it there. And it's, it seems to work more like triangulation. Have you thought much about how you aim? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think it depends what gun, but I guess if we're talking about my my just normal spearing guns, I use probably oh, it's probably standard overhang for some people, but I use 400 mil overhang so yeah. on my rail guns where i shoot speed spear i have 400 mil of the spear pretty much hanging out the muzzle mm. i find i find that helps a lot just because you can you sort of like i said it's more it's more like um yeah someone once said it's like playing darts you don't you don't close your eye and sort of line up darts you sort of it's by feel and i think i think a lot of spearers shoot like that it's sort of more instinct than anything i can't I don't really feel like I look down the barrel a lot, but I definitely mm. think having that um, spear overhang definitely helps me. I know when I've gone to guns that, like some roller guns and stuff that don't have as much overhang and you can't see this sort of spear hanging out of the muzzle that I find it a bit harder and you sort of do need to look down the gun. But, yeah, definitely, yeah. With, my, yeah, definitely with my normal guns, sort of I think that spear overhang helps, you know. 
you mentioned diving with reels. What reel are you using? Are you using the Aussie reel? Yeah, I've I've got a lot of people that know me. I've got a bit of a overzealous spear gun collection, but um, yeah, generally, yeah, I've got an Aussie reel or another reel that I'm using on a few guns at the moment. It's a Seagull sub reel, which is from Italy, but yeah, not super common in Australia. But it's it's pretty simple reel. It's just a yeah, just got a normal drag. I think they hold about 50, 60 metres of line and they're pretty light. But, yeah, they're the two main reels I use. Is that a vertically mounted reel or the horizontal kind of thing? Um, I think you'd call it a horizontal, so it's same as the Paxman reel, really. Yeah. Does it does it mount the same? What's How does it how does it mount? Yeah, it's different. So probably not as easy to install um, as you need to sort of take the handle off, put something in the barrel to screw a bolt into as opposed to the Aussie reels are great because you can just clamp them to any gun and change them out. Is there any early mistakes you made with real guns? Uh, definitely. Tangles <laughs> is probably the main one. Um, yeah, yeah. It takes, takes a bit to get used to shooting fish, especially slightly larger fish with uh, real guns, you know, drag settings and and also, also just landing the fish. But the main tip I guess I'd give people is, when you're shooting fish on a real gun, don't stay stationary. Swim up your line. It's just like uh, a reel is basically just like a rig line, but you basically need to work your way up it. And if you're pulling up a meter of line, swim forward a meter. You know, some people sort of sit in one spot, drifting along and pulling up big chunks of line, and then you know, next minute a mackerel takes off or something like that, and it can can cause tangles and wrap you up and stuff like that. The mackerel blistering first run. And then the bigger ones have got another couple in them as well. So, yeah, I can definitely relate to to what you're saying. I've seen a couple of messes. So definitely a learning curve with getting on reels. Today I've got a sweet offer for you. To go with this free episode of the Noob Spirit podcast, I've got access to some free courses. How cool is that? Go to noobspirit.com forward slash TED. Now, Ted Hardy from Immersion Freediving, a frequent guest on the No Spirit podcast, has got several free courses available at nosparrow.com forward slash Ted. Check it out, Freediving Safety. There's a full video course about how to avoid shallow water blackout, how to be a good buddy, all the fundamentals of just being a good, safe Spiro, and it's all free. Check it out, nosparrow.com forward slash Ted. There's another one in there as well about how to take a 20 to 30% bigger breath, which will give you more fuel, more time on the bottom and uh, make you a more effective spirit. There's also a whole lot of other courses there as well. Check them out, get a 15% discount, newspirit.com forward slash TED. Guys, head over to vimeo.com. Check out the How to Spearfish video series by Luke Potts. There's nearly four hours of video training there and they're divided into five different videos so far to help you take on the areas of difficulty that you might have. Now there's a beginner's guide to spearfishing gear, there's a guide to how to increase your breath hold for spearfishing, there's techniques for spearfishing yellowtail kingfish, which also doubles as a guide to hunting pelagic fish, there's a, a guide techniques for spearfishing snapper, which is a really good, um, helpful guide for approaching canny reef fish, which is a tough one, and finally a guide to spearfishing around sharks. If you want to buy any of these videos, use the code NoobSpero and save a bit of cash. Check it out. Vimeo On Demand, how to spearfish. Let's keep moving on. Uh, what's the toughest situation you've had out in the ocean and, and what, what did you learn from it? What were some of the things you took away from it? 
Uh, I've had a few of the normal ones like most people, I guess. Um, probably I got chomped on by a shark. That wasn't the greatest. And then the other one, the other one I probably won't talk about. But, um, <laughs> you can't do that. I, yeah, I got I got so I was diving away probably I think it was a couple of years ago now. I was lucky enough to um, one of my real good friends has a maritime business and he had a contract to do some underwater pipelines in a um sort of a third world country in the Marshall Islands, which is sort of in Kiribati or Tarawa Atoll, which is probably about 3,000 k's, I think it's sort of northeast of Fiji, so yep. sort of out in the middle of nowhere, not not generally a place that you would go. It's not a, really a tourist destination or anything like that. But um, anyway, we're putting in these pipelines and, you know, funnily enough, we're over there for a work trip and um, we did happen to have our spearfishing gear and be doing a bit of diving and we're lucky enough that we finished our pipelines in a pretty good time as you do when you want to go spearing. And um, we managed to get away to an island. It was probably about, I think it was about 40 miles away from the main island that we were diving on because the main island we were working on, as good as the spearing was, we just wanted to check out this other sort of nearly uninhabited island. So anyway, we were lucky enough we had the two work boats, which were from Australia and pretty seaworthy, so... We headed across this sort of island that wasn't really on the charts that we had or anything like that. So we're just exploring that and yeah, yeah I was coming up from a dive and just got chewed on a bit by um one of those grey whalers, the dog tooth tuna wahoo eating angry suckers that you see in the coral sea and stuff. were you shooting dog tooth at the at the time? Well, why did it come up and have a chew on you? Yeah, I'll tell you a bit more. I guess um no, it wasn't. So it's was Pretty odd, really. I was diving with a real gun. Um, my boss slash mate at the time was on the big tuna cannon with all the floats and everything. Like, we were there. We met business. We were there for doggies, really, and we're seeing a few smaller fish and seeing some really good fish, actually, but we're just still trying to work it out. We're doing a lot of drops and trying to find the right sort of pressure point and some fish and lots of fish there, but didn't really run into any, any big doggies at that point. And I think... It was probably about a couple, oh, two or three hours into the dive. I, I was just diving along the drop-off wall and I was on the bottom mucking around with an octopus a bit and scratching the reef a bit, I guess. And then I was just descending, coming to the surface and or ascending, coming to the surface. And, um, yeah, I got hit up by this, this grey whaler from behind. I didn't see it coming. I made on the surface in the clear viz, seen it coming and sort of hit me real hard. And I didn't really know what was going on at first. I sort of... It just um, felt like someone hit me with a baseball bat, really, and I was, I was sort of more shocked than anything. And obviously I worked out pretty quickly that this thing's chewing on my back or trying to chew on my back, and it managed to get a hold of me a couple of times. And maybe one time on the on the sort of, um, I guess, on the back, like on the lap, but I was, I was lucky that the way I was facing and the way that it bit me, it couldn't get a hold of, it didn't get a limb or, or anything like that, but it was pretty angry and it left a pretty big, sort of scrape mark, I guess, in my lap and then it let go from there and I sort of turned around to see, you know, what obviously what was going on and then it latched on to my my um, side. But then I was lucky it, yeah, it couldn't, it couldn't, it sounds a bit weird, but it couldn't have worked out better. 
And then it latched onto the side with my belt reel and my knife, mm. so it just chewed that, <laughs> and I got a few teeth marked there. But I, I sort of got out of it very lucky, really. Mm. Um, but, yeah, I guess the shark attack was probably the easier part. The, the hard part was we're in a third-world country. Yeah. yeah. So we're in a proper third-world country. It's it's not even like Fiji here. It's um, It was, it was yeah, pretty – so the island we're diving off was only had a population of about – I think it was 150 people. Yeah. And um, the main island we're working on where we're doing our pipelines was about 40 miles one way boat ride. So, mm. yeah, no radio, no coast guard, yeah. anything like that. But, yeah, I was, I was lucky. I'd, I'd just come back to the boat and we had first aid kits and stuff on the boat and the guys patched me up there and obviously we made the call to go back to the main island to try to – get some medical treatment, but I was just super lucky that where it bit me, didn't hit anything vital or anything like that, tore tore some chunks of flesh off and stuff like that, but I was just lucky. But, but yeah, I, I, guess the, I guess the hard part for it wasn't so much the part in the water. I think it was the all the other part because we're in a third-world country. So, mm. anyway, we, we, um, we ended up driving back and we're ringing. As soon as we got into sort of phone reception, we started calling – because we had an RDO, and he wasn't answering his phone. So we had, we had no ride. We had no um, – we just beached the boat, and then the other guys drove it back because we had two boats with us. Yeah. And then sort of hitchhiked in the back of someone's car and then um, went to a hospital. <laughs> yeah, the, the hospitals there are pretty wild. You know, it's, it's – we're, we're so lucky here in Australia. There's mm. – yeah, there was nothing really. It was cats and dogs in the hospital. And Far out. Sharps and syringes on the – the outside garden where they dump them oh, and no, no sterilization. So, yeah, I think I went. I went to the first hospital, and you know, my mate cottoned on pretty quickly that was with me. So I was lucky. I had, I was around good people. You know, everyone. There was a few first aiders and stuff like that. And yeah, uh, one of my real good mates, Shano, who was in the water with me diving and saw it. He was with me the whole time while I was going through the sort of hospital process. But we worked out pretty quickly that you know the hospital that I was in wasn't really going to be much chop. Um, I remember I, I remember walking in, yeah, and they, they put me on some table. It was like a old painting table. It had – I sort of had my shirt in my hand and I was in my boardies still. I think, I yeah, it was in my boardies oh, or something like that. And um, I sort of laying my shirt down because I didn't want to get my um, my wound dirty and I, I think I brushed the, the rat shit off the, the bench and it was an old oh, painting oh. table with – about 10 different types of paint on it. And I was sort of looking at my mate and I was like, oh, I think I'll just stand. And anyway, we ended up going to another hospital. So there was two hospitals on the why. island because on this island in Tarawa, there's um, it's about 90,000 people. So as, for as big as the island is, I think it's got the population density of Bangladesh. So, and it's proper third world. So anyway, we end up going to this other hospital, which isn't much better. And, um, Pretty well by that point in the car, you know, it's another 30 Ks in the car. My mates organizing flights to um, fly out. So we're lucky enough that he was flying out the next day anyway. And it was our last sort of hurrah there to go spearing and all the rest of it. So he basically accompanied, accompanied me back to Australia and sort of helped me out. And I didn't really get proper medical treatment, I guess you would say, until I was back in Australia. Yeah. And, uh, but yeah, definitely some sort of character building exercise, I imagine. <laughs> uh, 
So the sharks had multiple goes at you. What 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 actually did you end up with wound wise and um, scars and all the rest of it? Did you end up with some um, cool stickers there to show people, like you know your war wounds and stuff? Yeah, yeah. Well, this is the thing. I was lucky. I didn't need. Well, I did need stitches and all the rest of it, but like I wasn't really keen on letting these guys touch me because you could sort of tell by. The, I don't want to bag him too much, but yeah, by the medical treatment there, it was it was pretty shocking. You know, there's it's it's hard to even describe. But like I said, cats and dogs walking through the wards, and you know, I laid down when I got to the main hospital, which was slightly better. Um, I I remember the first hospital I rocked up to. They got the doctor lady, and she took one look at me and just walked off. And then I got stuck with a nurse that didn't really want to have much to do with us. They were sort of just a bit overwhelmed, I guess, but. When we went to the second hospital, they sort of took me in straight away and I, was, I remember laying down on this bench that was sort of had some – it was all sweaty and greasy from some big islander, I think, was laying on there before me. So I sort of laid, put my shirt down and I'm sort of trying to precariously lay on this thing and, and by that point, we've already got some flights out because we've sort of worked out that it's not not the greatest here for uh, medical treatment. And then I had I had a doctor come in who was, who was pretty good um, they sort of tried to clean it up, but definitely didn't sort of clean it up to the spec that you sort of need. And um, they were they were keen on stitching me up, um, which was good. But at the same time, we sort of had enough experience between a few of us that we worked out that it probably wasn't the best idea because obviously to clean it, yeah, to clean a wound like that, you need to put sort of um, anaesthetic in and really scrub it and, and do a few things to it, which. You know, I sort of they whacked some betadine on it and some saline, I think, and that was about it. So, uh, um, yeah. So basically, what happened is we left the hospital, and I think they gave me some antibiotics. Like the best thing I got there was obviously some real killer antibiotics. Um, yeah. I got that from the little chemist out the back, pushing some cats and dogs out of the way, and <laughs> and, and and then we trekked it home, and they sort of they sort of wrapped it up, but. Um, these guys, like, they didn't even have elastoplast tape at the hospital, you know, to sort of put things in perspective. So the dressing that they put on me fell off on the uh, 20K trek back to our hotel. So by the time I got back to the hotel, you know, I had no dressing on there anyway. So the boys the boys had already um, teed up. We had proper big first aid kits on the boat. And funnily enough, our first aid kits from Australia are probably way better than anything they had in the hospital. So... Yeah. What I ended up doing is uh, going back to our rooms, and I'd, I had a really good first aider in our in our marine crew, and he basically basically patched me up and put a heap of creams and stuff on there, and and then uh, in the morning I flew out uh, Tarawa to Fiji, and then Fiji to Melbourne, and then yeah, when I rocked up into Melbourne, we sort of pretty late at night and headed into the hospital, and yeah, kicked off from there getting some proper sort of treatment, but. I guess I was just – it couldn't have worked out any better in terms of the people I was with, and I was just super lucky with where the shark sort of got me. I think if I had needed real, real hardcore surgery, I think, I think it would have, been, would have been a bad day at the office. Big story, but you got out of it all right, and uh, not, even, not even too many scars. How long did it take to heal? Um, healed reasonably quickly, but as always, I would have liked some more scars, but it's, it's healed up pretty quickly and uh, pretty good. I was when I got to Australia and back to Perth um, with those sorts of wounds these days. I think they always get plastic surgeons onto you, so you don't have 
doctors stitching him up or anything like that. And um, obviously once people find out you've got a shark bite, every man and his dog wants to come play with it because a lot of plastic surgeons, yeah, a lot of plastic surgeons haven't had a go at a shark bite. So I probably got I probably got awesome treatment here in Australia really as opposed to people with normal sort of cuts. But I think they did probably too good a job, to be honest. They, they, I don't think they they couldn't really stitch up some of it because it was too messy. So they left yeah. some of it open. It just had to heal over. But then there was a few sort of clean cut marks that they they didn't fully stitch. I think it was like a butterfly stitch or I don't, I don't know the medical term. They did some sort of fancy method to close it up. And, um, and yeah, they closed up a few. I was hoping they were going to leave it all open because it kind of almost looked like I got scraped by a bear or some weird some weird like that, not really a shark. But, um, but yeah, still got a few, few scars now, but it's healed up pretty good. <laughs> so they healed you up good enough so you can continue your uh, modelling career, mate. Oh, I about that. So I wanted to move on a little bit, Sam, and get into this sort of the style of diving you learnt in South Australia. So this veteran's fault is scrounging, which is a particular technique you use down there. So look, fill us in on um, on some of the things and key insights you learned around scrounging, if you can. Um, it can vary a lot, actually. This is, I think, I think the biggest biggest uh, misconception a lot of people have is that diving the southern states and and other parts of the world that are pretty temperate and might have smaller fish aren't as enjoyable or aren't as good. I probably have to say um, probably some of the best diving I've ever done is in South Australia for me. So what what's diving in South Australia like to get started, Sam? I guess the general diving could be anything. It's a lot shallower water, um, you know, a lot smaller fish, and you are, you know, I'm probably best known by some guys, I guess, for scrounging and sort of diving in holes and, I guess I did learn that from South Australia. It's sort of a method that's pretty common there. You know, often you're swimming around and you might not see many fish out in the open. So, you know, you start scratching around and looking in holes. And, and obviously we've got a lot of crayfish there and, and a lot of our fish do live in holes. So you end up, you end up if you want to do well in the southern states, you end up looking in a lot of holes and using torches and, and that sort of thing. But, um, yeah, I mean, common fish, you can shoot off Adelaide or the peninsula. You've got a lot of squid. There's a lot of brim. There's boar fish. And I guess the stuff that um, I was mainly trying to chase is the snapper and King George and and the slightly better fish. And then you've got anything in South Australia up to big tuners and, and kingfish and stuff like that and a lot of untapped things that people don't really do in South Australia. But, um, but yeah, the general gist of it is probably more shallower diving. And, yeah, definitely some scrounging there. So caves are pretty intimidating, especially when you're free diving because they're narrow and, you know, you've got to be careful. You Sometimes you're dealing with surge and stuff like that. There's eels, wobby gongs, dark, it's dark. I guess you don't have much claustrophobia. claustrophobia. <laughs> did, you, did you have a lot of angst at first? If you are going to go in real tight holes, I wouldn't do it without a spotter or something watching you. Um, one of my good buddies, Dave, you know, we sort of get ourselves in some pretty precarious cray ledges and stuff like that where, you know, if I didn't have him watching me or that particular sort of guy that I know very well, I, I wouldn't be going in some of the holes. I go in, in Southern Australia for sure. Um, yeah, definitely. It helps to have a really good buddy with you if you're going to wedge yourself in anywhere sort of tight because I have come stuck a few times with 
generally not very common, but yeah, definitely have got into a few holes where I've had to be pulled out by the legs a few times. Far out. How do you indicate to your buddy that you're stuck? Um, generally, if I'm going in somewhere real tight, you'll obviously just communicate with each other and say, look, I'm going in here. Um, generally, he'll wait. He might wait 40 seconds, a minute or whatever it is um, and sort of come down. He won't dive down with you straight away, but he'll sort of come down maybe halfway through the dive and just see how you're going. And generally, if there's a good buddy, you'll, you'll be able to tell. And then obviously... You sort of shake your leg a bit, but yeah, generally, generally you can tell, you can sort of see. <laughs> yeah, okay. There's, there's a lot of trust in that relationship, though. But um, I've been pulled out of a hole by an overzealous buddy. He smashed my head into the mouth of the roof of the cave. I was terrified of my buddy. I wasn't scared of the cave. Um, have you experienced anything like that yourself? Definitely not with uh, my buddy Dave Schofield, that's for sure. No, he, he's all over it. And I guess that's why having good buddies and people like having good buddies so much. I mean, I've been diving with Dave for about 15 years and we obviously weren't doing that from the get-go. But um, over time, you definitely learn to know each other's sort of capabilities and what, what you're doing and, and when you'll need help and all the rest of it, yeah. <laughs> yeah, sounds like a... Good relationship. You mentioned you also carry a torch. When do you use it? What torch do you use and how do you use it effectively? Um, I've got a couple of different torches, but um, for spirits and fish anyway, I like to use a real bright one. Obviously, I think I don't even know the brand of the one i got now. I just got it from Adreno, but um, it's got a few different settings on it, so it goes brighter and, and not so bright depending upon what you're doing. But I guess how I use it, um, I try not to overuse it. I mean, I think that's pretty important when you're diving in holes. Try not to overuse it. First of all, before you even shine a torch in there, I'd be looking in there without the torch first. You know, if, if you can see a fish or see crayfish or see anything in there without the torch, that's definitely the best option because mm. I think people can overuse okay. them and you can scare fish and crays and all the rest of it before you might not even see them. You know, they, they could just see this big bright beam coming and they'll, they'll be out of there. But, um, mm. Definitely have a look, try to wait for your eyes to adjust. And then if it is a deeper cave where you need the torch, try to um, use the edge of the beam. So I try to, first of all, anyway, when I'm first scanning through the cave, I would be hitting using the edge of the beam, not the direct beam, just waving it around like a lightsaber. You know, you just want to be hitting, hitting the edge of the beam in the cave, just line it up enough so you can see if there is something in there. And then obviously yeah. if there's something that catches your attention, um, hopefully you can pick up what it is pretty quickly and sort of make a bit of a plan of how to shoot it or how to get it. But definitely, definitely not overusing the torch. You know, I think a lot of people probably overuse it. And if you shine it in a crayfish's eyes or, or a fish's eyes, it's, it's probably not going to like it. And by the time you work out how to spear it or get it out or anything like that, it's going to be uh, probably out of there. Okay. So with the settings on your torch, do you, do you dial them down or do you focus the beam? What do you do with the settings on the, on these things? Yeah, I'd probably prefer a slightly wider beam, but the torch I got at the moment's got a narrow beam. Um, I don't think it makes that much difference in terms of scaring fish, but like I said, it's still still got an edge of the beam. You know, I just don't. Um, I don't really dial it down. I probably the first. I think the first click you hit my torch on, it goes straight to the brightest. But um, if I if I did know there was a cray in there or something like that, I'd probably dial it down. And and you know, if I was working on that cray. I would probably dial it down a few notches if I can still see it 
when it's on um, the low setting. But I think, I think yeah, just trying to use the edge of the beam and shine it a bit more on the roof of the cave or the rocks instead of actually waving it around in there, if that makes sense. Yeah. Okay, so what are some of the more memorable catches you've had um, in, in any case? What, what's... Um, funnily enough, this will probably sound weird to a lot of people, but in South Australia, um, we shoot a lot of fish in caves and, and probably the better fish I've shot in there is we get quite a few uh, snapper. So, yeah, pink snapper in caves. Um, took me a while to sort of figure that one out because I was always pretty clumsy diving around the caves and, and making a lot of noise and I never used to see them. But if you approach a cave correctly and with the right sort of methodology, I guess, in South Australia for sure, you can shoot a lot of strange fish in caves. A lot of, a lot of fish seem to like to rest up in them that you wouldn't quite expect. Um, yeah, queen snapper, snapper, um, even even some stuff like King George I've shot in holes. You know, you can sometimes get anything. But, um, yeah, in South Australia, I've shot sort of snapper up to about six kilos in holes. Um, most of the bigger ones I've shot are out in the open, but I definitely, uh, definitely have seen bigger fish in caves, which you wouldn't quite expect, <laughs> which is pretty odd, but, yeah. I guess uh, they hide up in caves because there's not a lot of commotion, so any vibration in the water sort of sets them off, which sort of begs the next question, you know, how do you get in there without w- without alerting them kind of thing? One thing I do or a little little tip I guess I have is I I make a like a neoprene sock for my torch because I don't like that most torches these days are aluminium or the real bright ones are usually uh, made out of alley. So if they bang on the rocks or bang on your gun, it makes a really loud noise. So I have a wetsuit material sort of sheath over it, I guess. Just blew it up with a bit of old booty or something. Um, that takes a lot of the noise out. But And the other thing I do that's probably slightly different is, um, I don't know if you've ever seen Europeans, how they dive when they dive in holes. But I remember from a young age, I was sort of watching european guys dive on some dvds and fortunately enough these are some real good guys and um they dive they dive upside down in caves so when they first approach a cave or a ledge they don't just plonk down on the bottom and the weight belt hits the sand and the coral and 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 makes a noise and puffs up a big bit of sand and the fish sees your whole body what they do is they dive just pretty much like you're on your descent and and basically the first thing the fish sees is a little bit of spear gun and your head coming over and, and basically that's all they see instead of a whole body laying next to a ledge. They approach it upside down, if that makes sense. And I think that makes a massive difference when you're trying to chase um, flighty fish like snapper and a few things in caves. It takes a bit of practice trying to shoot upside down and all the rest of it, but it's um, surprisingly comfortable and works a lot. And when I started doing that, that's when I started seeing snapper in caves, funnily enough, I, when I used to dive normally and swim along a ledge and plonk my way along a ledge, I, I never used to see anything, to be honest, uh, apart from the odd cray and, and fish that don't really move, yeah. I've played around a little bit with going into caves upside down, but I've noticed that sometimes you almost get like a bit of vertigo and it, and it throws you out. Is that some, do, you, do you get that yourself or is that just me? Is that just me? Yeah. Um, no, I think that happens, but I think, as long as you approach the ledge pretty slowly, I think I think that definitely might eliminate that. If you're moving a bit too quickly, you sometimes could get dizzy being upside down. But 
um, yeah, definitely comfortable, but it's definitely, definitely different. That's for sure. But, um, yeah, I noticed that when I started approaching really good caves like that, that I started seeing more things too. A lot of the time, yeah, you know, the fish sees, sees a body plonked down, even it could be five meters away and it could be up the ledge or something like that. You know, they sort of hightail it out of there. Yeah. Right. Cool. Some, some, some stuff to think about there. Just, just thinking about what you were saying there, like here off Brisbane, I, I won't even look up until I'm, you know, more or less on the bottom. So even if that means I'm in, you know, 15 metres or, you know, beyond whatever, I, I don't look up and then I do, I just plonk down on the bottom and that will be when my hunting starts. And um, so this is kind of a, a different way to look at it, I guess. To, to, to do this technique where you're going upside down into a cave, um, you'd have to have your weighting pretty spot on, I'd imagine. If you've got standard weighting on, I mean, and you're in 20 metres, you'd probably be a little bit negative. So it's something you, you'd probably have to get, finally tweak a bit, I, I guess. Yeah, yeah, definitely weighting. I think that just helps in all terms of diving if you're correctly weighted. But, um, yeah, it definitely helps with diving in the ledges and stuff like that. But um, obviously, spearfishing in any scenario is a lot better when you have your weight sorted. Okay, cool. Tell us a little bit about scrounging. How do you how do you um, do this well? It's a bit of a bit of an Aussie slang word. Um, probably more so referred to diving temperate waters. Um, I guess it sort of come from the guys in southern Australia. You know, they sort of ferret around and scrounge around on the bottom, looking in caves and and trying to scab up fish that you know you might might not necessarily see swimming around out in the open. You know, you sort of scrounge them up, whether it's from Burling around an area, or or getting in a few holes, and and yeah, I guess I guess that's the the uh, overall sum up of scrounging. So for guys um, diving temperate waters and using this scrounging technique, what are some tips you could you could give to them? Um, just being thorough, I think that's probably a big one. A lot of people they might check a few caves, and then it's pretty easy to uh, lose interest if you don't see something in there. But I guess with time and experience looking in the right caves, you'll definitely you'll definitely be able to spot sort of the right type of reef in the right caves. But I guess, yeah, just, just being persistent with it and it's it's definitely a proven technique in southern Australia. You know, a lot of fish live in caves or rest in caves or hide in there. They might not necessarily be cave-dwelling fish all the time, but generally speaking, a lot of fish you'll see they either resting in there or passing by in a cave and, you know, just – you might not necessarily see the fish swimming out in the open, but it doesn't mean that they're not there. You know, they could be there. It just, and I guess that's maybe where in the southern parts of Australia where there might not necessarily be as many fish or pelagic fish swimming around out in the open and schools of fish that scrounging is a pretty big one because you sort of got to got to look at all the options in terms of you, they might not necessarily be swimming around out in the open, you know. But um, definitely there's pretty good cave structure in most parts of southern Australia that's well worth looking at. You'd be surprised what you find in there. So just to summarise there, Sam, um, you know, I got slow right down. Be very intentional with your movements. Um, there was the upside down when you're entering a cave, that sort of technique. Uh, we talked about using the edge of the torch beam rather than shining it directly on them. And, then, you know, muffling your equipment, you know, you talked about the neoprene sock on the torch. Are there other parts of your equipment that you muffle as well or is is it? 
Yeah, just just being quiet, I guess, and moving along. I mean, noise can be a pretty big help in diving in certain terms, but I guess when you are scrounging and looking in the holes, probably trying to be a bit more stealth is probably the key. But, um, but yeah, I definitely think you pretty well summed it up there. And being, being thorough is just working your ass off. Yeah, find, find a good area, find an area that looks fishy and, you know, it might take a while to work out what fishy looks like, but once you start to get a bit of a feel for diving and, and the reef, once you do find a good area, be, be thorough, you know. You might not necessarily see the fish, but doesn't mean they're not there. Cool, Sam. Awesome. Great section, man. With my experience diving New Zealand, there seems to be a lot of um, signalling, um, you know, whether it's species or weed, even urchin and things like this. How did you develop your observation skills in terms of like finding and identifying signalling species? And, and and in particular, what what alerts you when you're in South Australia that you're in a fishy area? Um, I guess there's a few indicator fish there and I didn't quite figure them all out myself. I mean, I was given a lot of info through other people, but I think there's a few fish there like um, the vinculum or six-band coral fish or moonlighter, they call them. That's okay. definitely a indicator fish that there's going to be a cave or something nearby um another one's your bullseye i think you get them up in queensland and all over the place really but definitely definitely your bullseyes is a good one that there's probably a ledge around and if the bullseyes are outside the ledge generally there could be a fish of some description inside the ledge um and then the other one would be also be maybe old wives which kind of look like a Many boarfish, I guess, they're, um, that usually means that there's a cave around or some sort of structure nearby. They're probably the main three, I guess. And then obviously you'll have bait fish and just other things that could be hanging around. But, um, but yeah, definitely those are the three for, um, where there might be a bit of, bit of good structure and cave sort of systems. You sound like you've got a catalogue of information and fish in your mind. It's very interesting and it makes me curious. Have you got any books with regards to species? Um, no, I do I do have a few, yeah. I mean, I remember when I was a kid, um, I think it was one of the first times I ever met Marianne, actually. Bless her. She gave me a um, fish book. So yeah. I think it was Southern Sea Fishes or something like that. I think a lot yeah. of people probably have that book. And, um, yeah, that was definitely definitely a pretty good one for Southern Australia, you know. Um, it's pretty much got everything in there and the pictures in there are pretty realistic too so they're not um, yeah they don't really misconstrued or anything like that yeah it's a problem with some of them you get these beautiful surface pictures of the fish but it's almost worthless because it doesn't give you the features in detail and uh, it lacks the the silhouette and the and the details we need as divers to sort of get them because the colours all change them. So yeah, some of the books are good and some of them aren't, but I was just curious as to what ones you had. Spiro log, an actual log book for spearfishing. Yes, it's a paper form and perhaps we could go digital in the future. But at the moment, Spiro log is available right now on amazon.com to capture your dives and help you replicate past results. Because if you're capturing that fish in those specific conditions and it doesn't happen every week, there's probably some unique variables that are allowing that phenomenon to take place. So record them in your dive log. You can go back, you can have a look at data over time and you can see what works, what makes your spots and locations tick. 
Get Spiro Log on Amazon.com today. Spiro Log by Noob Spiro. Today's episode is brought to you by Patreon. It's a membership platform that makes it easy for artists and creators like the Noob Spiro to get paid. Basically, you support us per episode at any level that you choose. Head over to patreon.com forward slash noobspiro. Today's episode powered by patron listeners just like you. I wanted to move on to the next section, but what, what's in your, what else is in your dive bag? We already sort of talked about spear guns. Dive bag. So I'm using, I'm not sponsored by anyone at the moment, but um, I'll let you know what I'm using. I use Diver in Negrofins at the moment. I really rate them. Um, they're great for swimming, great for diving, all sort of depths. And then I use polo sub wetsuits. So generally, I think I got a three. I got a three and a five mil here in WA, and I sort of just mix and match depending upon where I'm diving. Because uh, if you're up the coast, you might only need the three, and then sometimes you might only need a five mil top and three mil bottoms. And and if you're diving down south, you want the five. So. Yeah, I pretty much just use those two suits. And then sometimes if you're real far north, you might have only a 1.5 mil suit. But um, that's my suit. And then, yeah, just pretty standard gear, really. And I just use a single rubber railgun most of the time here. But sometimes if I'm doing some blue water stuff, pretty rare sort of in WA. But um, I do have a few bigger guns, like a few cannons, I guess. That sounds like a good dive bag, mate. What's the water temp range here? Oh, it's a pretty big variant. What do you got out there at the moment? Oh, I wish I haven't been diving here for a couple of months, to be honest. I think I'm just coming up to my break now, but um, I think I'll, it'll probably, if I go down south, it'll probably be around 17, 18. But I think oh. off Metro at the moment, it's around the 20 mark. And then I might be going north on the weekend. So I think it'd probably be low 20s up there. Yeah, it, var- it varies a lot because such a big coastline and that's the thing about WA is you could be diving 600 k's north and it'll be completely different. So Yeah, right. So last part of the show is Spiro Q&A. Uh, it's a faster paced round of questions unless you had a, a yeah, funny story that you wanted to share, Sam. I uh, definitely probably don't have any non-incriminating or PG ones for you, so I might skip that one. <laughs> The, the boys will probably be pretty happy about that too. What's the single best piece of advice you've been given for spearfishing? Probably just trust your instincts. You know, if something doesn't feel right, it probably isn't right, and you should probably work out what's wrong with it. If you could start all over again, what would you do differently? Probably wouldn't change too much. I mean, I know that sounds a bit funny, but I think I, I probably learned the slow way and the hard way, but it's probably a good way to learn. Um, maybe trying to get affiliated with a club quicker, but I think. In a lot of ways, I still was lucky around 15. I sort of teed up with some key people. So, Are you in a club now? Um, no, I'm not. I'm a bit of a ghost here in WA. I, I sort of dive with a few guys that are in clubs and, and that sort of thing. But, yeah, a lot of the guys I do dive with, with aren't sort of in the club at the moment. But I do a few things around the club. I worry for my mates when they dive the comps and stuff like that. But, uh, okay. yeah, not affiliated at the moment. Oh, actually, I'm in, I'm in my mate's South Australian club, funnily enough, even though I'm not in South Australia. So okay. um, I'll give him what's, a little plug, actually. What's the club? Uh, it's Golf Skin Divers of South Australia. So he only just started the club up again because South Australia didn't actually have a functioning club. So he's just started that up. So if anyone's 
anyone's looking to get a club or get around some dives in South Aussie, hit up Dave's Goldfield and from, yeah, Golf Skin Dives. Where are they based? Are uh, they're they in Adelaide. So, yeah, that's that's basically where they're based and then they dive all around South Australia and sort of even even abroad. He does a fair bit of interstate stuff like most of us and, yeah, good bunch of lads. Oh, awesome. All right. What current challenges do you face in your spearfishing and how are you approaching them? Time and time and money. Um, does does your breath hold decline when you when you're not getting out all the time? Yeah, definitely, definitely. I think it does. Um, I'm pretty bad with training for diving. I've never really done it. I just try to dive a lot, and I guess the hardest thing for me coming at WA from South Australia, where I used to dive two, three times a week, is now I sort of work fly and fly out, and the weather over here. I sort of had these envisions that i would be diving more because i have more time off but it's not really the case here because the weather's pretty hostile but um yeah i do try to stay fit you know i I do go to the gym a little bit and walk the dog was doing a bit of i started doing a bit of running before the inner packs comp just to try to keep the fitness up but in terms of breath hold i've never actually really trained breath hold i just try to relax in the water and i'm probably probably a bit more comfortable in the water i guess than a lot of people so for me when even if i've had a bit of a break from diving it only takes a couple of days to sort of get back into it i had a big spell away from the water for quite a long time ago and and i was horrible when i first got back in the water but you know i joined the brisbane bull sharks as a pool freediving club but focusing on exercises for spearfishing and definitely helped me get back some fitness but um it is interesting to talk to guys and hear how they try and, you know, maintain their breath hold because talk to some crazy dudes and they hold their breath upstairs and all the rest of it. So it's, it's interesting to hear your thoughts on it. Um, you know, I'm probably not the best one for the, the training side, but... Um, <laughs> all right, last question. If you could go anywhere in the world, what's your where would you love to go, your dream spearfishing destination? Uh, I'd like to say all of the spearfishing destinations, but I'll probably... The one that's on my radar next at the moment is in 2020. Um, I'm traveling over to South Africa with my girlfriend. So, definitely trying to tee it up at the right time of year to chase some fish over there because I reckon they got some pretty cool stuff happening over there. So, yeah, I think, I think we'll be going over there for at least a month. So, I'll obviously have to do my duties, but there will obviously be some spearfishing involved there. So, I'll just try to tee up something over there, I think. I was just going to ask, can people come and find you online, Sam? Where? Um, I'm pretty slack with the social media side, but um, I do have an Instagram and a Facebook account. So I think my Instagram is S Dawson. So unfortunately lost the last bit of audio there from Sam, but if you come to noobspirit.com, go to the Sam Dawson show notes, you'll find his social media all linked up in there. But uh, what an absolute bloody champion. Thanks for the whole interview. Thanks for the chat, Sam. Legend. Hope you got a ton out of uh, today's episode. Sam is an absolute legend. Uh, some real good information there, uh, you know, particularly about cave diving and scrounging. I really liked his perspective on temperate waters, which are often overlooked. So, uh, really clever guy, Chloe Spiro. So, I really enjoyed that chat. Um, look, 
again, subscribe to the YouTube channel. We've got a couple of YouTube vids coming out there in the next coming weeks. And also jump on patreon.com forward slash noobspiro and support the show because your, your funds will go directly towards uh, funding our, our future trips. And we've got this Melbourne one planned later in the year. Haven't got any dates locked in yet, but some of the boys down there that we've chatted to, like Eckhart and Sven, have already reached out. So we're going to make that happen. But um, yeah, all the money from Patreon will be going to trips in the future to come out, spear with you in your neck of the woods and interview a legend along the way. So yep, look, catch you next fortnight. That's two weeks for my American buddies. That's what a fortnight is. And uh, see you then. Catch up. Hey Noobers, it's uh, Jeremy here from Spearing Magazine with an, uh, with an update for you guys. Shrek and Turbo have been doing such a great job with uh, telling guys about Spearing Magazine that we've actually sold out of most of our back issues and catalogs. But uh, I just wanted to let you guys know that uh, we have an international subscription available just for you guys. Yeah, from Spearing Magazine. I'm Jeremy Gamble. Thank you, guys. Go to SpearingMagazine.com. Check out the uh, international subscription. Aw, yeah. Now, I don't know about you, but I love new gear. And spearfishing.com.au have got a huge range. Mad flat shipping rate, especially in Australia. And if you use the code NoobSpearer, you not only support us, but you get $20 off every purchase over $200. That's right, pump in the code NoobSpero at checkout, N-O-O-B-S-P-E-A-R-O at spearfishing.com.au and you will save 20 bucks on every purchase over $200. No brainer, thanks Adreno.